Welcome to Second Baptist. Welcome to Harbor. If this is your first time here, we welcome you. Uh, we've been, as a church, uh, if you didn't know this already, we've been going through a series called 52 Weeks Know the Bible. So we're going through the whole Bible chronologically, start to finish. And this week, we are, our, we are now our 12th weekend in. We are wrapping up the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, and it's the last and final book of the Pentateuch. So the Pentateuch is, that might seem like a really ancient, weird word to you. Pentateuch is really just uh, the word for the first five books of the Bible, what Israelites would call the law, or what we as Americans would, or sorry, they would call it the Torah, and we as Americans would just call it the law. And so Pentateuch, I know that it's a strange word, but essentially, you know, it, it, it has its root in five. So, you know, penta means five. It's the first five book. That's all it really means. Um, but the word Deuteronomy is also a weird word as well, I understand. Um, and we don't typically use that in everyday conversation, just like the word Pentateuch. But it, it has the same meaning. It comes from the same kind of word structure as Pentateuch might. So, for example, if penta means five, uh, Deuteronomy actually gets its name uh, from the word second. So think of the word duos. Or if you're going on a, uh, you know, out to town, you might say deuces, deuces, or duo. You're, you're, you're implying the word two. Um, so uh, Genesis, of course, means beginning. Exodus, they're leaving the, uh, Egypt. The Leviticus, you have the Levites who are responsible for administrating ways we can be right with God. And uh, Numbers is where they had consensus, or the censuses taken of the numbers of Israel. Like Deuteronomy is a little bit harder to understand, but that's essentially all it means. It means two, and then nomos, it means law. So Deuteronomy, two law. It's the second law. Now, why is that important? Why are we getting into the details of the names and the number of the Greek and all that? Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because the name itself gives you the reason for what the book is all about. So essentially, Deuteronomy called the second law. It's called the second law, not necessarily because it's something new or a new law that people haven't heard before. Rather, it's just the opposite. In fact, it's called Deuteronomy because Moses, who's the author here, is essentially just repeating and retelling and clarifying and re-explaining all that had been said, all the laws, all the words, all the promises of God that had been said previously, Genesis through Numbers. So he's just repeating himself again. It's the second law. So if, you were, if you're up to date with our reading plan uh, and you're like, wow, I think I've read this before. Am I, have I just like, re- yes, you, you definitely have because he's just simply repeating himself. Now, why would he be doing that? Is he wasting their time? Well, no, there's a couple of reasons why he would be repeating or retelling or reclarifying this law. One is that if you repeat it, it's probably because it's important, right? You know, like if you were in class in high school or even in college, uh, a teacher might say, you know, in the middle of the lecture, oh, I'm going to say this again because you might hear this another time hint, hint, on the test. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, let me get my pencil out and make sure I write this down. That's, that's one reason why he's repeating. The second reason is because, and I think William uh, explained this last weekend, was because Moses is now giving a speech, Deuteronomy, to not people who have heard it before necessarily, but really it's to the next generation. It's the next generation of Israelites. Now, if you remember uh, from following along with our series, those who were the Israelites in the promised land uh, had rejected God. They rebelled against him. They didn't trust him. And so they were in the wilderness for 40 years. So they had to wait until they got to the promised land and they couldn't go in. But the next generation could. So Moses is speaking to the next generation who is yet to go into the promised land. That's why he's repeating it and, and, and re-clarifying all these things that they know. He doesn't want to waste their time. He doesn't want them to waste their own time by not knowing what they ought to be doing and what, how they ought to live their lives. And so uh, he's beginning uh, to re-clarify all these laws to the Israelites. That's why the book of Deuteronomy is significant. That's why he's repeating it. So does that, does that just 
right up front ring or resonate with you, ring true a little bit. So he's, Moses is talking, the whole book of Deuteronomy is about the next generation. We are the next generation. This is like the same age group that he would be talking to. So he's saying this is important because more than what the future holds, more than before you go into the promised land, more than whether it's if it's great or if it's bright or if it's dim or dreary or even the worst or best circumstances, more important than all of that is knowing and treasuring the words and the promises of God to bring you through whatever it is that you're going to be walking through next. So that's what Deuteronomy is all about. It's very, very poignant for us, very, very uh, applicable right off the bat. And so... There's two things in the book of Deuteronomy that I want us to look at this morning. And these are very, very important. We can't just give in time, and we're already running shorter. Uh, we just can't look at the whole book of Deuteronomy all at one time. Because uh, there's like 30-some chapters. So we're going to look at two passages, two main verses. And these two verses essentially function like hinges on a door. Okay, So every single door typically has two hinges that it's connected to the wall with. Right? Well, these two passages function like two hinges, um, and everything in Deuteronomy hangs on those two hinges of those two verses of the entire book. So without those two verses, really, it's just a message that doesn't really connect. So understanding these two verses and how they work together is absolutely pivotal to whether or not Christianity will feel like spiritual breakthrough for you or whether or not it will just feel like a closed door that you just can't seem to get through. That's how important these two verses are. So if you would, open up your Bibles to chapter 6 and go to verse uh, 4 and 5. 4 and 5. And the other one, if you want to kind of uh, dog ear it or whatever the word is, uh, it's chapter 30, verse 6. So these two verses kind of bookend everything in between uh, in Deuteronomy. And in doing so, because they're hinges, they almost, in a way, act like mirrors. And they're pointing to and reflecting back one another. Um, and in doing so, giving vision and clarity to everything that's in between, if that makes sense. So they're always referencing one another. So here's chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. This is what Moses says. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And this is chapter 30, if you want to roll back there real quick. Real quick. Uh, it says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So those are kind of very similar verses. They sound almost the same. But do those verses sound familiar to you? Maybe you've heard them in another part of the Bible, perhaps? Well, you say, yeah, I think that might, I might have read that before. And that's, this is uh, referencing a time where Jesus was talking with the Pharisees in Matthew 22. And the Pharisees asked Jesus, they said, what is the greatest commandment like in all the Bible? Like if I can sum up the whole Bible into one sentence. What would that look like? And so Jesus said in Matthew 22, he says, well, it is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. So there you have it. So when people were asking Jesus, the son of God, hey, if you can take the whole Bible, all 66 books, thousands of words, hundreds of chapters, and just, you know, filter it down into one essential message, what is it? And Jesus is saying, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he's actually referencing word for word these two verses that we saw in Deuteronomy in chapter 6 and chapter 30. That means it's pretty important. And so Jesus is appealing and, and pointing back to this one verse we're going to look at today. So from the message, I want to uh, kind of hash out four different points, four points that go with what is important that we learn from this passage. And that is four things describe the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength. So this is, that's kind of how I'm going to break it down. The first one is the heart. So if you're taking notes, you could write this down. The first one is laws don't change your heart. 
but the gospel does. Laws don't change your heart, but the gospel does. Did you notice something particularly interesting, maybe bizarre about the laws that we just read? Does it sound weird? Like they're not commands that we're usually familiar with, right? What is it? What's the command? It's to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You're like, okay, yeah, that sounds easy. But why would that be bizarre? Well, here's the question. Can you be commanded to love something, right? Can you be commanded? No, you can't. You can't be commanded to fall in love. That just doesn't, that's not how it works. Um, Now, you can be commanded to do this. For example, maybe your mom and your dad might command you to take out the trash. You're like, okay, I can do that. Or your boss might command you to complete this assignment. Okay, I can do that. Or your personal trainer might command you to, you know, do whatever. I know Holly leads a crazy class here. She can command you to do whatever it is she's trying to make you do, and you can do it, right? Now, that kind of obedience is relatively easy. Okay, why? Because it's just behavioral compliance. That's all it is. Behavioral compliance. That's not what Moses is getting at here. He's commanding something much more than just behavioral compliance. He's commanding love from the heart. But doesn't that sound tricky, like genuine love? How do you command that? Well, because can you be commanded to fall in love? No. Another example. If you hate broccoli, can you just be commanded to love broccoli? No. If you're a Texas fan, can you be commanded to love you, uh, Oklahoma? OU. I almost said you owe. Yeah, that's not right. OU. You can't. I'm a, I'm a UNC fan. I can't be commanded to love Duke. Now, if you... If you for I hate Zion. You can't, you can't force me to wear. I mean, you can force me to wear a jersey. Maybe I'll do it, but my heart is absolutely not in it. Same thing. This is this kind of obedience is tough. Those kind of commands. Why? Because obedience requires this kind of obedience requires a real change of your heart from the core. Otherwise, you can just do it for a little bit and then whatever. You just kind of let it go. So Moses is commanding something here that seems impossible. He's commanding us to love God. From the heart. Here's the thing. We are sinners and we don't love God from the heart. We don't naturally just love to delight in and love God just simply for who he is. Sure, we can give God our behavioral compliance. We can show up to Bible study class. We can go to small group. We can sing the nice songs. We can give some of our money. We can do what mom and dad tells us we can do. And we can do things to make our other Christian friends think that we're not that bad of people. But is that what Moses is getting at here? No, he's saying, and you should do those things that I'm saying, but overall, that's not what Moses is getting. He's like, even if you have all that and the heart's not there, then why even do it anyways? Like, what's the point? Don't waste your time. Don't live in that like, awkward tension. And so he's saying the reality is, is that we all struggle to love God from the heart. Moses knew that. He knew that about the Israelites. He knew that about himself. He knew that that would be true of everyone. So what is the solution here? Well, he points it back to chapter 30. So that was chapter 6. Chapter 30, what does chapter 30 say? It says, the Lord your God will change your hearts so that you may love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. So do you recognize something interesting here? He's saying, Moses is saying, I know I can't just command people to love God, so one day God will have to change their hearts so that they can love him from their hearts. Someday God's going to have to do it. He has to change our hearts before we can ever truly and obey him from the heart. We'd, otherwise, it's not going to happen. Right here in chapter 6 and 30, He's pointing to some distant reality that's going to happen. God changing people's hearts. And they can't see it then. It's a shadow. But now on this side of history, we can see it in full what that looks like. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where God would come down in flesh, live the life that we were supposed to live, die in our place for the sin that we deserve to die. And his body would be broken for all the, all the laws that we would break. And so that we could be saved by grace through faith. 
that alone, in light of that grace, in light of that love, and we don't deserve it, that's what begins to change your heart. Roman, uh, Romans 2.4 says repentance comes from God's kindness, not God's punishment, not God's wrath. We start repenting when we dwell on his kindness to us. 1 John 4 says we love because he first loved us. We don't love because that's the Christian thing to do and you ought to do it, and if not, you're a bad Christian. We love as a response to the love that has been given to us. Laws can't change your heart. Only the gospel can. The law has two functions, okay? You write this down. The law has two functions. It can serve as a mirror, just showing you, you know, what, it is, what you're looking at in reality. And it can, and it can uh, work like a compass, showing you where you ought to go. It, it, can, it can essentially act like a railroad track, right? Like it can show the train where it ought to be and how it ought to go forward, but it doesn't actually make the train go forward. Okay, or, or think of another example, um, like an x-ray. You can take an x-ray, and you can see that, oh, frick, I have a broken ankle. But the x-ray itself does not heal your broken ankle. Even though you paid $2,000 for that x-ray, and it, you think it ought to heal your ankle. It still doesn't heal your ankle. It just shows you what your ankle ought to be like and what it failed to be and what, how it needs to be improved. That's all that the x-ray does, and that's what the law is doing. It exposes the problem, and it highlights the ideal, but it does not give you the solution. It doesn't make you better. It doesn't heal you. It doesn't change you. It just shows you. It describes, in other words, it doesn't prescribe. It can diagnose the problem, but it can't prescribe the, the solution. See, God is not after, in this situation, your rote, empty, dry obedience. He's after your heart, and the law doesn't possess the power to change your heart. Or allow you to love God. It just doesn't. It can show you what loving God looks like, but it can't empower you to actually do it. So he's not after, God is not after obedience just for the sake of obeying. That's lame. Think about, think about if you were dating someone. You're like, oh, I ought to do this for them because I'm dating them. They're like, oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> that doesn't work. God's the same. He's a person. He doesn't want you to, to obey and do things because that's what you ought to do. He wants, you to be, he wants that relationship of love with your response. He's not after obedience He's after, in other words, a new kind of obedience, a good kind of obedience. And so maybe you're wondering right now, I've been in church a long time, and I'm just struggling like, to love God. Like, What does that even mean? I'm struggling to find in my heart love for God. Like, it just seems dry or empty, or maybe I'm just exhausted from trying. And that's where the gospel comes into play. We need the gospel. Only until you have a view of the love of God for you will you ever begin to have feelings of love for God in you. It all begins with God's love given to you on the cross and dwelling on this view of God. Through the gospel, God will transform your hearts so that you can tr- truly begin to listen and obey from the heart. That's how the gospel works. It, it changes your affections, and then your obedience follows as an overflow. That's point number one. Point number two, because i got to keep rolling. Your feelings, number two, so that was kind of on the heart. I'm going to go to the soul or your, maybe your emotional side of things. I don't know if that's a correct way, but anyway. Number two is your feelings are not to be followed. Your feelings are to be led. Your feelings are not to be followed. They're supposed to be led. Have you ever heard someone say like, oh, just, just trust your heart, honey. Just trust your gut. Just do what's right for you. Yeah, that is the worst <laughs> advice you can ever receive. It's so bad. Why? Because the Bible says, and this might be offensive, but it's what it says, that we are sinners who are broken, who are limited in our own wisdom, who are inherently selfish, and who desperately need help. We should not listen to our feelings to determine what we ought to know is true or not. Our feelings, we should not interpret our life through our feelings. We should interpret life through what is true and not our feelings follow. There's two main reasons why it's bad to follow your feelings. Number one is that your feelings will just lie to you. 
Your feelings are going to lie to you. I know the temptation is to trust your feelings to tell you what is true about life. For example, I feel this way, therefore it must be true. Or maybe this way. I feel negatively about this, so it must be wrong and bad. But I feel positively about this, so therefore it must be good and right for me. That's essentially the mantra of our culture. It all starts and ends on the way that you feel. That's just not true. The Bible's pretty clear. It says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. It pulls no punches. Who can trust it? You might say, well, Austin, that's, that's just, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't want to do that. That's offensive. I like to live. I, I, I get that. But it truly, it is more offensive to believe the lies that your feelings are telling you and to just stay in it. That, that's what will not help you move forward. So if you feel a certain way about something, for example, it could be a lot of different reasons. Maybe, for example, you stayed up till 3 a.m. studying for a big test. Or maybe, for example, you feel a certain way because all you ate the last week was Whataburger and Taco Bell and drank Mountain Dew. Maybe you haven't exercised. You're like, yes, I love that. Maybe you haven't exercised in three years. And you're like, I don't know, I just feel a bad way about this. Well, yeah, because your, your brain needs more serotonin to like, actually think straight. You know, so what, you can't trust your feelings. Now, here's how this applies on a spiritual level. What if you say, I feel like God doesn't love me? Well, you're wrong. You can know that he loves you because he died for you. Or you say, I feel like God doesn't forgive me. Well, you're wrong because I know that he did. Because he nailed it to the cross and resurrected from the dead, which proves that your sin is, is in the grave. And that he, if he himself rose to forgive you, then so your sin has been, has been forgiven. That's proof. Or I feel like God has given up on me. I feel like he's just not really listening to me anymore. Maybe I need to like buy, his credit, buy his love back in credit with my good deeds. You ever feel like that? I know that that's not true either, because if he went to the cross for your sin when you were his enemy, then how much more is he for you now that you're his child? This isn't about your feelings. You need to stop letting your feelings lead your faith, and you need to start letting your faith lead your feelings. You need to stop listening to your feelings, and you need to start preaching to them, even especially when they don't feel good. Number two is this. I know that you don't feel like reading the Bible, but... Who cares? Not many of us feel like reading the Bible. So just do it anyway. I don't feel like eating vegetables. I don't feel like exercising. I don't feel like doing a lot of the good things I know I ought to be doing. But that doesn't mean I need to follow my feelings. You know? I think this is a thing in Christian culture. I'm just going to get on a little soapbox here. Um, And adjust the mic. Many people think... I, I got to get all spiritually and emotionally like primed before I like open up God's word and read. Or like I need to feel like more ah that, that coffee and Jesus time before I really just make the effort to open up my devotional. Right? Like don't you feel that way? All right. Do not follow that train of thought in regard to how your feelings need to, impl- uh, need to inform your disciplines. Why? All right. Think about this way. Do you, do you know someone in your life who you're like, oh, no. I gotta like emotionally and like mentally prepare myself before I even hang out with them. Do you do you have people like that in your own life? You're like, don't say that to the person beside you. You're like, yeah, I'm ministering to them right now, and I'm just trying to get through this class. Uh, okay, we all have friends like that. But what does that show you? That shows you that you're really not that great of friends after all, right? Okay, like that's okay. We're, we're not. I mean, it's just true. We all have that person. It means that you're not that great. Now, all right. Now contrast that with your best friend. Your best friend. Now, your best friend, you can trust with anything. They want to listen to you. And honestly, you never have to mentally or emotionally prepare yourself before you hang out with them because you just want to vomit everything that's going on. You don't care. And they love it. They eat it up. 
That's what a best friend does. Yes, they eat up your emotional vomit. I said that. Yeah, they love it. And so, but that is the way that God is with us. He doesn't want you to be mentally or emotionally prepared before you enter into communion with him. Just go. He wants to hear you because he loves you. Well, here's the thing, too. You might say, oh, Austin, I'm just having a hard time changing my feelings. I can't change my feelings. I've always had struggle with this. And I know that this is a complex topic, especially if you're taking medication on this type of thing. But there is a spiritual element in any situation like this. And that is, namely, that your feelings are not the roots here. They're not the root issue. Your feelings are the fruits. Your beliefs are the roots. And so what you believe, you will more naturally feel. So what you need to do is not change your feelings like, as if you can muster up a different change, but really dwell on a grander view of God, of who he is in the gospel. And that will begin to change your feelings. You need, it starts and, and ends with your view of God first. So that's number two. Don't trust your, the subjective feelings in you. You can't do that. Trust overall God's word over you objectively. Number three is this. Uh, so we did heart, soul. This is going to be mine. I'm trying to move through these quickly because I know y'all got to agree. Number three. The Bible is how we know God and how we know what is true. Have you ever asked yourself just straight up, like, how can we, like, really know God? Like, that seems a, like, I know people are, oh, well, uh, the Bible. I'm like, yeah, I get that, yeah. And, and that's, that's not wrong. Hear me out. But have you ever just thought about, like, like how do you actually know God? Like, like, philosophically, how does that make sense? Okay, if, if the Bible is itself primarily just a bunch of words and opinions of men— then we really have no reason to trust it, honestly. But if the Bible is primarily revelations about God himself given to men, then we should maybe look at it more closely, okay? Think about this, okay, uh, have you all heard of Plato? Not the Plato that you mold, but Plato like the philosopher? Yes, P-L-A-T-O. He has a, a logical argument here for how you would ever know something that's beyond your own uh, circumference of knowledge. So for example, can I have a, can I have a volunteer, by the way? Someone? Uh, yeah, it's not going to be anything embarrassing. Yeah, you. Come on, Morgan. Give him a round of applause. Yeah, all right. So this is the way that Plato described how we would ever be able to know anything outside of our own knowledge. So Plato said humanity is essentially a person, sorry, humanity is essentially a person that will be chained to the back of a boulder facing a wall uh, in a cave. And, the, and the, the, uh, the opening of the cave is behind him. So you can never see outside. So I'm going to turn you this way. So you're chained yeah, 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 up against the wall, and this is the opening to the cave right here, and the back of the cave is right here. Now, there's going to be light coming in through the mouth of the cave, and it's going to be casting images onto the wall, kind of like a projection screen. And Morgan can say, like, oh, I see uh, some sways in the wind and some things that are kind of going off, and I see things that look like people, but I don't know if they're people. They're just shadows. I can't really know. And so Plato says that's essentially what we are like as humans, trying to figure out what's out there. We don't know. Now, the only way we would know what's out there is if this happened, for example. What if someone came from outside of the cave? You're still chained. Oh, yeah, sorry. And they said, hey, Morgan, I'm Austin. Oh, yeah, you're chained. Um, and, and, hey, I'm Austin. I'm from, I'm from outside the cave. Those things that you're seeing on the wall, that's actually a tree. They're green, they have leaves, and they like sway in the wind. And there's our, there are people out there that look like us, but there's also animals that walk on floors. And you'd be like, wow, that's crazy. I've only wow. known shadows before, but now you've given me something outside. What's an animal? Exactly. <laughs> now, now Morgan could say, thank you, by the way. <laughs> okay. Now Morgan could say, well, I don't believe you. It's like, okay, well, 
You would have no reason to not believe me. You would have reason to believe that what I said is true if, in fact, I came from outside. Right? That's just the logical conclusion. And so that's Plato said that's really the only way we'd ever be able to know the supernatural is if something from the supernatural came into our own natural and explained to us what the supernatural was. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to know. Plato here is not a Christian, but he is preaching. That is the gospel. Jesus himself came from the outside and came in to tell us, to show us truth. Now, we can choose to not believe it, but logically, that's the only way we would know. And so that is essentially what the Bible is and what the the person of Jesus Christ is all about. He is the word made flesh. And that's how we know God is through Jesus and through the Bible. So why is reading the Bible so important? Reading the Bible is important because regardless of how you feel or regardless of what you're feeling in that moment, the Bible is the cornerstone of how we view God. It is. It's the cornerstone. If you want to know God better, you have to know the Bible. It doesn't matter if you feel good about it or not approaching the Bible. You have to know the Bible. For example, uh, for those of you who work with architecture or real estate, a cornerstone is the first stone that you lay, and it determines the alignment of all the other stones that are placed on the building. So if the one cornerstone is off a little bit, then everything else is going to be off. The Bible is your cornerstone. Otherwise, everything is going to be a little bit slightly off set. Uh, A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Note that he did not say it's the most important thing about your religious beliefs. He's not compartmentalized. He's saying it's the most important thing about you. In other words, the Bible doesn't just inform your religious beliefs. It speaks to and transforms your entire life. Because the way that you view God will, in fact, inform all of it. You can't just dissect it or put it into different compartments or have it like a waffle. I'm thinking of like a waffle. Like, you know, like you put syrup on one side. My brain's just going a little bit weird right now. Um, but you, know, you can't compartmentalize your Christianity like that. It all goes together. It's more like putting maple syrup on a pancake. I'm going to screw this. I'm gonna, uh, this analogy is not working. Okay. Um, but, but that's why you need the Bible. <laughs> that's why you need the Bible. It's because we can't compartmentalize what we think. It's the most important thing about you, and it will form everything. And then lastly, uh, to go into strength, if you will. Um, so we did mind, heart, mind, soul, and there's going to be strength. I'm going to talk about obedience, our, now our action, now our behavioral compliance. Uh, all through the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving, explaining, clarifying, retelling the promises of God. But every time he gives the law, there's an emphasis that is paired with the law. That doesn't mean just because we have the gospel, now the law isn't important. It's still absolutely important. But he is saying every time that the law is given, it's always paired with follow Follow the law, obey, and it will lead to life and freedom. Disobey, and there will be death and destruction. There will be death and destruction. In fact, all of chapter 28 is that, just said in different ways, if you want to check that that chapter out in particular. When I was in high school in particular, I thought that God gave us laws because he was just trying to shut down the party that I was trying to have. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to enjoy life. And as I have gotten older and maybe a little bit wiser, I've realized that God gives us laws because he wants us to be free and he wants us to thrive. Okay, I know that when you hear about laws, you immediately think of how it's going to restrict your freedom. I understand. But think about it this way. Let me give you two examples of how this might apply differently, how the right laws actually give you freedom. Think about a fish, for example. A fish. What if the fish all of a sudden was saying, you know what? I'm tired of living in the ocean. I want to be more free. So I'm just going to live on the land. I want to have the choice. I want to have the option to be able to express my life however I want to be able to. And you're like, okay, well, then you can go live on the land. Is the fish more free on the land than the ocean? 
Maybe, for like 10 seconds. But yeah, no, he's not. Because the fish is not designed for the land, it's designed for the ocean. So even though conceptually you might think that there's more freedom by having the option to be in the land or the ocean, it's actually, practically, you're not. You're more free in the ocean. And the same thing is for us as humans. There are limits to our design. And, and when we disobey, we're crossing out of those limits. We're going against the grain of reality, uh, trying to assert our individualism. And it doesn't work well for us. Another example is like this. Think about those double yellow, yellow row, uh, lines in the road, right? So those things mean do not cross. There's oncoming traffic going the opposite way. Now, you might say, well, you know what? I want to live however I want. I want to drive however I want. And how dare the government tell me how I ought to drive my car? How narrow-minded and bigoted of them. You might say, okay, that's insane. No one would ever, of course, say that. Why? Because we know that double yellow lines are there for our protection and they're there for our freedom. They're there to give us efficiency and freedom when we drive. It's not trying to steal from our fun or steal from our individualism. It's just... This is the way that traffic ought to work. Now, at 5 p.m. here, you might think something else. But overall, that's the point. Um, And the same is true with God. He's saying to us, obey. Not because I'm a drill sergeant who's trying to steal from your fun, but because I love you and I want to give you what's best. I want to see you thrive. He's saying, don't have sex outside of marriage. Not because I'm trying to steal from your pleasure. I'm trying to do this so that you can be free sexually. And when you don't, there are real repercussions. Or, or, for example, don't fudge your numbers at work. That's not a, uh, a thing that Christians ought to do because Christians ought to be good people. That is a, I don't want sin to wreak havoc in your finances. And it all begins with that. Or, for example, don't covet or don't gossip. Those aren't just things that nice Christians do. Those are things that God is saying, if you stay away from coveting, if you stay away from gossip, if you stay away from bitterness towards one another, then it'll be better off for you. It'll, be, it'll go well for you if you don't. Only those things will breed death and destruction into your life and into your relationships. Now, see, I also understand this. That might sound heavy or might sound like condemnation. I get that. But because we have the gospel, we have a view of a God who loves us deeply when we were at our worst and desires our absolute best. So when you think about the law, when you think about obedience, it doesn't feel like condemnation. It doesn't make it condemnation. If you don't obey, then you don't obey. It's, it's not kind of, it's exhortation. That's what it is. Religion, that you have to earn your way with God based on your works, that is condemnation if you don't obey, because you're condemned. But the gospel says you're accepted, therefore obey. So now, then your obedience is not about condemnation, it's about just exhortation. Look, look like, I don't, obedience is not, in this case, a hammer that's going to flatten you when you fail. Obedience, in this case, is a simple, humble plea to realign your car into the yellow lines of freedom. That's all obedience is. And I know that sometimes it comes at a cost, but he's saying, in light of this great grace, in light of this great mercy, obey. This is a God worth obeying. This is a God worth submitting to. And then there's three practical things. I'm going to paint these really broad strokes before we wrap up. Um, if you want to write these three, three things down, this is essentially how you can sum up all the laws in between chapter 6 and 30. And this is it. It's like when you obey, God will always protect you. When you obey, God will always protect you. I know sometimes you think, if I obey, it's going to cost me, and it might. But spiritually, you will be protected, and spiritually, you will be more in the safest environment than anything else that you would have tried to weasel yourself into otherwise. So number one is, when you obey, God will always protect you. Even if it doesn't look great in your circumstances, you are never more inside the refuge of God, and he will protect you. 
When you obey, secondly, God will always provide for you. When you obey, God will always provide for you. If you're like, God, I don't want to break up with this person because I enjoy this relationship and I'm afraid that if I break up, then you're not going to provide for me. But you know the right thing to do. Obey and he will provide for you. He will provide his best. Don't, don't delay that because you're only costing yourself in the long term. Don't just follow and obey. He will provide for you. He will protect for you. And you know that he will protect you and provide for you. If he did that by sending his son to the cross when you were his enemy. So if he did that for you at your, at your worst, then surely he's going to provide for you and protect for you now that you're his child. He will protect and provide. And then thirdly, it's this. It is you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Now that sounds like karma, just the Christian version. Hang with me for a little bit. It's not karma. There is a, we all can agree, a moral fabric to our universe that if you do this, things will happen this way. Not all the time, but there's a general path that that's just the case. If you punch someone in the face, you probably have it coming for you. That's not just karma Buddhism. That's just the way it works. Okay. Or if you sow into a healthy pattern of exercise, you will reap the rewards of that. It's just the way the world works. Now, there's two things with reaping and sowing that are absolutely vital. One is the law of later. What you sow, you will reap later. What you sow, you will reap later. And secondly, what you sow, you will reap greater. You always reap more than what you sow. And it goes both ways. It goes, if you sow to, uh, to righteousness and to healthy living and to, and, to, and to the gospel, you will see fruits of that in your life more so later than now. Or than, than now. And the same thing works with sin. If the more that you sow into sin, the more you will reap later and the more it will have greater effects. So what are you pouring yourselves into? What are you sowing into your life right now that will breed a, a, a harvest later in your life? What are those things? Listen, I know that we have grace and we're forgiven in Christ for sin. But there is a sobering reality that we need to embrace. And that is that don't sin now. Because even though you have forgiveness, there are still repercussions. You, God doesn't hold that sin over you, but you will have to hold that repercussion over you regardless. It, it, think about it like a tree. Okay, if someone says, uh, when's the best time to plant a tree in my life so I can have a lot of shade? Well, people would say, well, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago because it needs time to grow and it needs time to branch out. But the second best time to start planting a tree is today, right now. So what are you doing right now? How, how, maybe you're like, I, I, God, I've wasted the last three years of my life and I, I, I've forsaken your law and I've turned into sin. And that's, I understand, but... Start today. Start sowing what, will, what you'll reap later today. Now, some of you, I, I realize, you kind of hear some of these like laws to obey and all that, and it, it feels like it feels like being a conformist. Maybe does that feel like being a conformist to you? Maybe you have like a rebellious streak in you, and you're like, I don't want to do that. I, I just I'd rather be a rebel. I get that. I, I kind of have that myself too. Um, but but think about it this way, just just real quick. If you have a streak, if you really want to be a rebel in life, then follow Jesus. If you really want to be, Mark Driscoll says it this way. He says, I know in our day, rebel means sinner. But if everyone is sinning, it's no longer rebellious to sin. Jesus was a rebel who was countercultural. You're just a conformist if you're out getting drunk and smoking weed and cheating on your expense reports and sleeping around and gossiping and breaking commandments. You're just a conformist. Everyone's done that. That's so tiring. If you really want to be a rebel, then read your Bible because no one is doing that. That's rebellion. That's the only rebellion left. In other words, if you really want to be a rebel, then save sex for marriage. If you really want to be a rebel, then share the gospel with your friends and live on mission. If you really want to be a rebel, 
then give 10% to the kingdom of God and show that money doesn't have its hold on you. If you really want to be a rebel, then forgive that person who you rightly have reason to hold bitterness against. If you really want to be a rebel, then don't find your self-worth on flaky Instagram likes, likes and followers. Find it in the love of Jesus for you. That is what it means to be a rebel because no one else is doing that. And that's what we have here at Second. We want to be people like that. Don't be a rebel to God by being a follower of the world. Be a rebel to the world by being a follower to God. That's what we're called to do. And in conclusion, to wrap things up, because I know my time here is about 30 seconds too, too late. Uh, Deuteronomy ends, the whole book, ends with Moses finishing his speech to the next generation. This is, this is essentially how it ends. It goes, he passes on the torch to the new leader, okay? And then he walks up a mountain, and then he dies, and then the Israelites are about to enter into the promised land, and then the end. And you're like, what? It, hold on. Like, so, so, so what happens? It's not just Deuteronomy ends that way. The, the whole Pentateuch ends that way. The first five books of the Bible end that way. All the law, all the promises, all the things that God had promised and, and prophesied about for them. It just ends. Have you ever like watched a movie or a film like that? And you're like, okay, that's not fair. Or, uh, what if you have Netflix? You can actually just go right through and you're like, all right, right. five seconds later, delayed gratification, whatever. But what happens next year? We'll see, as readers, we are left with a massive cliffhanger. And this was totally intentional by the author of this passage. He's not just saying, will the next generation of Israelites respond to obedience and the gospel with faith and trust? Will they? I don't know. You, as the reader, are supposed to be into the story, feeling that tension yourself, not will they. The question is, will I? Will we? Move forward in faith and trust in your situation now. And you're, all of you here are young adults at a very ripe time of life where there's going to be a lot of transition and there's going to be a lot of pivotal move, movements in your life one way or another. Will you, will we follow in faith and obedience? In light of God's done for us in the gospel, how could we not respond in obedience with our lives? That's, that's how the book of Deuteronomy ends. Okay, so I'm going to wrap up in prayer. And we all be dismissed to grief. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time uh, that uh, we all at Harbor get to meet uh, together, to look into your word, to look at what you say is true and true for us. God, give us strength and the humility um, to submit to truth, not to try to twist it or live in it you know, on our own terms, but to come to you just with surrender in light of what you've done for us. I pray this all in your name, Jesus. Use us and send us to reach the city. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.